Now, would you like me to be the cat? Welcome to episode 16 of Blethered. This is part one of two with Labour MP and Shadow Minister for Scotland, Paul Sweeney. We covered a lot, so that's why this is going out over two episodes. Paul talks about his early interest and involvement in politics and the circumstances that saw him become one of Westminster's youngest MPs when he won the seat for Glasgow North East, which is my home constituency. He talks about his early impressions of Westminster and the surreal nature of being thrust into government and rubbing shoulders with some well-kent faces down in London. We discuss the political landscape in the wake of the Scottish referendum and in the midst of the absolute clusterfuck PR stunt that is Brexit, which has obviously seen Scotland being dragged out of Europe against its will. Everything has already been said on that subject, I know, but we exchanged our personal thoughts and feelings on the matter. We spent a bit of time talking about the level of political engagement that existed in the run-up to the Scottish referendum and how we need that to continue. I give my opinions on Scottish independence and Paul gives his. That balance of views should satisfy the professional instincts of any politics editors listening. Well, the inclusion of political balance does depend on who you work for, but I'll leave you to decide if that applies to you or not. We chat about various socio-political aspects of Scotland and the UK with an exchange of opinions and perspectives on multiple facets and nuances of Scottish and UK life and politics. And there's obviously a hell of a lot happening these days, hence the two-part podcast. We touch on the parallels between pre-Nazi and Nazi Germany and the influence of the right-wing press in the UK today, something we need to not only wake up to, but reject in unison before it really is too late. Jacob Rees-Mogg came up. He's a good laugh, isn't he? Now we discussed how he looks like a haunted Muppet who has a black heart. If he has a heart, that is, because I'm not entirely convinced. Do you know what's a right good laugh? When Rhys Mogg quotes the Bible and purports to be a Christian, yet swans about day to day like a fucking Victorian version of Satan on a cocktail of steroids and cocaine. I'm not insinuating that he takes cocaine, I'm just saying he pure acts like Satan, just in keeping myself right there. Now we talk about Rhys Mogg and how people like him are dangerous because they're actually very charming in the way they engage with people, thus actually disarming them and blunting the sharp edges of their despicable and evil politics. Now, I'm a fair guy. I give credit where credit is due, so fair play to Jacob Rhys Mogg for having that ability to charm people and to present and package himself as a harmless and affable gentleman. That is not an easy task when, like him, you have the vacant and terrifying eyes of a man who was breastfed by his nanny until he was 20 years old. Incidentally, the only reason his nanny no longer breastfeeds him is because she retired when he was 20 and his parents decided not to replace her. There are unconfirmed reports, however, that his wife bottle feeds him each night after he has a long soak in one of those old-fashioned standalone bathtubs but that information is somewhat hard to verify. Overall, Paul and I share the same views on some things and we're in different camps on others, but it was fascinating and enjoyable to bat these points back and forward with an elected Westminster representative. You might be diametrically opposed to Paul in some subjects, just like me, but one thing that cannot be denied is he is a thoroughly decent guy, so I can't thank him enough for taking the time out to come and talk to me. I'll have part two out soon, where we talk about the contribution and value of foreign visitors and residents who've made home in this wonderful wee country of ours, amongst hundreds of other things. As usual, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Gran, I know you'll be listening, so make sure you've got your bottle of Mad Dog chilled, cracked open and your feet up, because it's time for Blethered. Paul, welcome to Blethered. Hi, how you doing? If you don't mind, um, I will have introduced you in the intro, but if you don't mind just giving a wee introduction as to who you are for people listening. Yeah, well, I think we first crossed paths at school. Aye. Uh, so back in Turnbull High School. Um, and then, you know, left left school, went to uni, standard sort of path. Uh, then went to, I got a graduate job at the shipyard in Glasgow, did a graduate scheme there. Um, then went on to work at Scottish Enterprise, did a bit of time in the 
territorials and bits and pieces and um, Theresa May went on a walking holiday a couple of years ago mm-hmm. uh, and then came back and decided to call a general election <laughs> and I thought well might stick my name in uh, and then get picked as a no hope candidate as it was seen for that, that time uh, a bit of a wild card and then despite being 16 to win the bookies managed to get elected as an MP almost two years ago on June the 8th 2017 so did you? since since then I've been doing this MP gig did you stick a tenner on yourself? no my dad did so did he did right. I, I think that's a, that's a rule against MPs betting on themselves or candidates uh-huh. but um, also I didn't want to tempt fate I was uh-huh. superstitious about stuff like that so I didn't want to go near it <laughs> so when you say you put your name in the ring I mean how does that happen did you have you had involved did you have involvement with Young Labour? yeah well the thing about party politics is I suppose um, a lot of people majority of people wouldn't really be that interested in it to get involved in joining a particular political party for mm-hmm. example so I guess I was always a bit odd in that respect um, you know I remember back at school me and John McKenna who's the history modern studies teacher oh, for legend, yeah. if you remember yeah. we always used to have really interesting political discussions and he saw himself as a bit of a socialist so I guess he had a bit of an influence on me in mm-hmm. that kind of thinking uh, I'd always been brought up in a household that basically always taught me that the Tories were the bad guys so that's, it was a fairly simple a good, a good analysis, <laughs> you know. They were the baddies. Um, I remember the optimism of um, Labour coming to power. I remember that in my house in 1997. Like it seemed like a, mm-hmm. it seemed like a refreshing thing. So I was kind of that seed in my mind was always there about that kind of politics. My dad came from shipbuilding backgrounds. So he was in trade unions and stuff. So I think. My first sort of, um, I'd always followed politics from a young age. Used to watch political programs back, even when I was quite young. Mm-hmm. I was always interested in it. Used to read newspapers as a kid and stuff. Um, so I always had a political bug in me. And then I decided to join a political party back about two thousand and eight, I think it was. Just after the, I voted my first election, um, which was the Scottish Parliament elections in two thousand and seven decided to join the Labour Party and then first time I got properly involved was when Gordon Brown's wife phoned me up randomly oh, yeah. I was middle of studying for my exams because there was a by-election on so the seat that I'm now the MP for funnily enough mm-hmm. um, it was, it was um, represented by the Speaker of the House of Commons Michael Martin Aye, yeah. uh, and he had to resign because of the expenses scandal because he was seen as like the kind of heat guy at the time so he kind of took the fall for it all had to resign and there was like a by-election to replace him so I got a phone call from Gordon Brown's wife saying by the way, we're doing this campaign. Japan's coming down, and giving us a hand. I was like quite flattered to get a phone uh-huh. call for the, um, you know, the prime minister's wife. Uh, I was like, aye, okay, I'll come down and give up a couple of hours, and can I just get involved with it from there? Mm-hmm. I saw Gordon Brown just kind of sidetracking, but I saw Gordon Brown speaking at a, an event for Mary's Meals. Oh, okay, years ago, and I think he had just, I think he just left the position as prime minister. Yeah, two thousand ten, and. Uh, We'll not go way into who I support or who I don't, but at the time, let's just say I wasn't a massive fan. Right. But when I saw him speaking, I was blown away. Aye, and he didn't do. Uh, he didn't do anything um, particularly notable. If you know, there's nothing you would you would say, wow, that was when they sort of won the room. But I remember just being really, really impressed. Yeah. Really blown away um, by by him when he was speaking. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people kind of maligned him when he was Prime Minister I think mm-hmm. which was a bit unfair like particularly um, a lot of it actually was to do with sort of his background like maybe people mock him because he had he was blind in one eye mm-hmm. he had an interest in challenging background himself oh, shit, uh, you know and uh, they had a lot of um, sort of issues with him which I felt was really unfair you know the way he was almost hounded mm-hmm. but he's a really powerful intellect and I went to the launch of his autobiography um, last year, I mean last year, yeah, um, and he was speaking with the Australian, the former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd at Glasgow Uni mm-hmm. to launch his uh, memoirs, and he was talking about the financial crash, and he was talking about two thousand and eight, and he was saying like, you know, no, nobody seemed to realise at the time how big a thing that was. Uh-huh. Like literally, the cash machines would have stopped issuing cash. That's like, crazy. He got it? a phone call from the head of our uh, Royal Bank of Scotland saying, look, three o'clock, we are finishing. We've got no money left, and imagine that dropped on you like, over your lunch. I know. <laughs> so I know. it was like the, the effort that went into actually fixing that to a point where people wouldn't get wouldn't even getting paid, wouldn't been buying food. I mean, just imagine how horrendous that would have been. 
they've been able to sit, sit and fix that quite quickly and also be a leader that pulled together the 20 biggest countries in the world, the G20, and kind of come up with a common strategy for fixing or dealing with the financial crash. Mm-hmm. In hindsight, that was like a massive thing. And we think how diminished the country feels now with everything that's going on with Brexit and yeah. just how like kind of embarrassing it all is. Like it, feels, it feels like we're a global laughingstock now. I wonder if a lot of people, because a lot of my anger comes from the fact that in the wake of that financial crash, that the bankers weren't held responsible. And I know that's quite a vague term to yeah. just say bankers weren't held responsible, but it was like your man Sir Fred Goodwin. They take mm. it as Fred. Uh, I think he got it removed in the end. Uh, but he, I mean, but he, you know, he never held the account. I mean, for example, in Iceland, they jailed all the bankers that caused the crash. And the right. thing about the thing about that was, yeah, in hindsight, I think the biggest challenge we are dealing with right now is a is a collapse in the respect that institutions once held, whether mm-hmm. it's the church, the state, um, you know, political figures. Even when I was growing up, there was a certain respect that people right. had for political figures. You know, there was a certain well, they seem to know what they're talking about. They're credible people. Mm-hmm. Whereas now it feels much more like everything's getting trolled, everything's getting questioned, everything's just getting totally torn apart. Mm-hmm. It feels quite a challenging environment to operate in, very disorientating. Um, and that can be quite a difficult thing. But, you know, to your point about the anger that people felt, I think it was justified. And what Gordon Brown was talking about when he did that um, boot launch um, was he's quite a intellectual character. So his thoughts were immediately on, right, I need to get into the nuts and bolts of fixing this thing yeah. and deal with it. He was never actually thinking about, right, I need to go up to Glasgow, I need to go to Newcastle, Liverpool, to working class communities and say, look, this has all went wrong, but this is what we're doing and this is why we're doing it. Mm-hmm. And this is why the countries are going to go through this turmoil just now. And he realised, actually, that the seeds of a lot of the problems we've faced since then have been about that kind of failure to communicate mm-hmm. the reasons behind why things kind of fell apart the way they did. Do you think that's why he maybe particularly suffered or was sort of lambasted or criticised because although, you know, in terms of the actual, as you say, the nuts and bolts of the job that he was doing really well, that he didn't have that schmooziness, for want of a better term, in a way to sort of yeah. be a bit of a media darling. Yeah. Or and I think that was a big... I mean, never... I mean, I'm making a political point, obviously, but never underestimate the capacity for the Tory party to be really duplicitous about mm-hmm. switching a narrative around. So they went from a position where they were like, oh, we're basically going to do everything the same way that Labour's doing it, like in terms of spending on the NHS or whatever. Mm -hmm. We're matching all these spending plans. As soon as the financial crash hit, which was started as, if anybody's watched The Big Short, for example, they'll know the origins of it. It was all about subprime mortgages Mm -hmm. and everything all got laced. The whole banking system globally got laced with this kind of virus. Um, So it wasn't like, it was a system that failed, you know, and no one really seen it coming until it hit. So you were just trying to react as best you could to the situation as it blew up on you. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the situation that he was dealing with, but Tories then switched into, oh, aye, this is Labour spending massive amounts of money on the NHS, on public services, blah, blah, blah. They were spending, they were maxing out the credit card. You know, the, the old saying was, uh, you should have fixed the roof when the sun was shining and all this sort of stuff. Aye. And you're like... How, oh, could, how could we have been responsible for an American cause financial but, but, crash? Exactly, and then it's like, but that... Because in hindsight, when you look at it, he wasn't making the counter argument at the time. He was so busy getting dealt, getting into dealing with it mm-hmm. on a global level, he wasn't up speaking to the punters about what was happening. Aye. So that narrative then became established as like the you know, conv- you know, just conventional wisdom. Mm-hmm. And then you're like really hard to unpick it when it gets in. So that's why Cameron was able to break through with his messages about Labour's broken the economy. They still say it every time Aye. we're in Parliament, and that you're just like. Ah, yeah. you've been in there for about nine years. Yeah, and it's like you're still dining out on this. So it's really frustrating, but that's the context in which a lot of these problems have happened. Obviously, then 2009, by the time I first got involved in politics, yeah. not only would have the banking crash, we had the expenses scandal at Westminster in mm-hmm. Parliament. So everybody was like, MPs are all feckless, they're all corrupt, they're just rinsing the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which, to be fair, there was plenty of that going on. But in any institution, how many doctors and teachers get struck off every year for misconduct? <laughs> you know, there's only 650 MPs, so what of averages is there going to be a certain amount of people that are at the fiddle? You know, it's just about understanding that, you know, there's good and bad in every institution, but the narrative then gets swept up with politics is broken, 
you know, I think a lot of people who once held great faith in institutions that worked for the, the country, worked for the greater good, all of their faith in these things was getting shattered. Mm-hmm. And that really caused a lot of anger, you know, so I think yeah. that's kind of creates a uh, bit of the understanding of where we're at today, you know, and why our kind of generation, if you like, had to deal with all these problems, more so than their parents have. Do you, th- like, do you think there is a, a much higher pressure as well, because you're saying about people criticising MPs, saying, you know, they're feckless, they're rinsing it and stuff. Do you think in the social media age and, <laughs> and the information age, is there a lot of pressure on you to to conduct yourself in that perfect way? Like, do you, do you think that's something that's been... I don't know if I'm wording that correctly. I just, I just mean, yeah. you know, do you, as there's more scrutiny, yeah, you know, is that is that something that you're conscious of that you know you not only have to be doing your job but you have to appear to be doing your job at all times? Or? I think it's a good point. Like, um, I mean, I just came in as a punter more or less. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a job in politics before I became an MP, and um, beyond just going around handing out leaflets and stuff like that, as you would do mm-hmm. as a punter in a party. Uh, so this is like other people that come in as MPs have usually been a councillor or have been something or other they've worked for an MP or they've mm-hmm. done something and they, so they'll know what they're doing they can kind of hit the ground running I, I come into it fairly bewildered a bit like a rabbit caught in headlights <laughs> you know so the 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 stress levels can be massive Aye. when you first start and then one of the worst aspects of that has been public property Yeah. Um, the realisation that that you're always on show you're always going to be questioned you know by the public that it's inevitable that people will dislike you just because of the colours of your party or whatever mm-hmm. that you're almost destined to be hated on Aye. you know that's quite a difficult thing to realise Like, and you have to kind of make peace with that because if you're somebody who genuinely is coming into it like I'm trying to help folk I'm trying to do something that I think's right I'm actually willing to listen and try and cooperate then you realise actually doesn't matter what you say you're still going to get absolutely hammered by certain people Aye. and it's a kind of once you realise it's going to be like that, you can kind of make peace with it and just deal with it. But it's quite a hard thing to adjust to. And like Twitter, for example, it's different than Facebook. Facebook's more of a... It's interesting the demographics. Like Facebook's a sort of camera environment to, to sort of show what you're doing, tell people what you're doing, yeah. and it's fairly all right. Twitter is just... A free for all. It's just... It's carnage. Mm-hmm. It's like Hunger Games, you know. But it's also self-selecting. So you actually realise the population that's on Twitter isn't reflecting the population at large aye so it's once you need, you need to kind of like kind of get your head around some of these things before, and then it helps you psychologically deal with it because mm-hmm. it can absolutely destroy you at times like it's, I'm not going to lie like I haven't seen it's alright for me because like the current situation is you know with Brexit and all that mm-hmm. it's not so bad for me because you know I campaigned to stay in the EU you know the Glasgow Scotland my constituency all voted by a substantial majority to stay in the EU right so I'm kind of aligned with my area you know I'm not at odds with my constituency mm-hmm. in that respect at least um, so it's been a fairly okay situation for me to make the arguments because it's generally what my constituents believe in as yeah, well yeah. whereas like seeing some of the folk in working class communities in England and in Wales that voted leave and they are obviously campaigned for Remain mm-hmm. And a lot of them have like, had to go against the grain big time. But I haven't seen particularly women MPs. Like, there were some of them like, having panic attacks and last week, you know, when, they, when they're going through to vote, because they were like, this is just going to be another 48 hours of death threats, mm-hmm. of malicious phone calls, of people like telling them where they know they live and by coming for them and stuff like that. So, that, you know, at one level, it was harrowing seeing that sort of situation, mm-hmm. that level of vitriol. Um, so it kind of puts it into perspective any of the sort of shite I would get on Twitter yeah, you know which is just usually it's usually in Scotland the SNP versus Labour stuff and it becomes almost a bit of a game mm-hmm. you know where it's it's a bit like the old firm you know what I mean it's like I was just thinking that you know it's like there's almost a symbiotic relationship where you know we yeah. thrive on the, the we thrive on the competition now uh, but actually behind the scenes like you know for all the sort of chat about is hating each other or whatever like I got on Fine, I'm a, a quite good pals with a lot of the SNP MPs. I wanted to ask you know, you so that, like you know, it's it's like we we go on the telly and have a pure shouting match and then come off and go for a pint, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so uh-huh. it's like, you know, it's kind of it, it might seem a bit disingenuous, but like, is there an element of theatrics to the the whole thing? Um, I, I mean, that's asking a question that I already know the answer to, but I just like you to elaborate on that somewhat. Yeah, I mean, when you get into Parliament, like 
there's the people you dislike and like in every party actually and it's mm. generally quite a human thing yeah like there's certain Tories I mean it's less than other parties to be fair but there's a couple of them that are actually really quite sound like uh, believe it or not uh, the ones I mean I'd argue they're like, misguided but they were, they're actually in a, a human level normal uh-huh. guys like yeah. you can have a chat with usually the younger ones so there's two Scottish Tories for example I would say Paul Maston and Luke Graham um, for example those two guys I, I can talk to yeah. they're perfectly normal guys they're roughly the same age mm-hmm. you know they're relatable people um, whereas like a lot of them are absolutely mental you know like and actually interestingly your man I don't want to say his name I won't but well interestingly you might say it like Jacob Rees-Mogg right uh, uh, right shall we just you know, I don't know if you've heard but I've <laughs> I don't like this guy. <laughs> well, I don't like him either. He's he a, looks like a haunted muppet. He, he is like something at the Jim Henson workshop, isn't he? Aye, honestly, but, it's, um, like, it's like a child's nature. Like he does, his heart uh, is black. He, he's like, he is like something at the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. But he, um, to be fair, he's he's on unca- he's he's in the same corridor as me. He's, is his office not next door? Aye, uh, it's like three doors up the corridor. But occasionally you're like passing the corridor, or you'll um, you'll go in the lift or something together. And it's kind of awkward because you're like, on one hand, it's like, you know, that way when you meet somebody who you, you've uh-huh. seen all the time on the telly and that, yeah. you're kind of like, oh shit, that's that guy um, in person. Does he just stare at your He's like Slenderman soul. in real life, you know, he's just like tall <laughs> it, guy, aye, stoops, that's you know, in a double breasted suit and all that. Aye. You know, he's like a caricature, but weirdly, like any conversation I've had with him, brief, however brief, has been like quite pleasant. Like mm-hmm. he's like one of these old school upper class twits, obviously, but mm-hmm. got that kind of disarming gentlemanliness about him yeah but I just you know but on the hand you know his politics are horrendous atrocious uh, and everything I despise about you know everything I despise about yeah Tories you know and that way you go yeah they are bastards and they are the enemy yeah Um, it's sometimes difficult you know that way where you might have that it's a bit like road rage isn't it you know like you can shout and ball at somebody in the confines of a space but when you actually face to face them there's a certain kind of yeah there's like a human element when you realise it as a person uh, do you know what I think about him (laughs) he's got the air of someone you might ask me to cut this out but I think he's got the air of someone who was breastfed till they were 14 (laughs) well he did have a well if you're not here well it's funny you say that because um he fought his first election campaign in Scotland. Can he uh, in fight Dun- his way a wet paper bag? Well, this is the thing. He went campaigning in Dundee, I think it was, with his nanny <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a Rolls Royce, you know, in Dundee. That's like, know, a, so, it's like a film, isn't it? Like, yeah, the guy's like the... We all make the joke, you know, he's the MP from the 17th century and stuff like that. And ah, he's, he's, like, he's like quantum leap. Yeah, he's like, he making points now, he's like, oh, he's like, you know, this is the worst capitulation since they lost the American colonies and all that. And you're like, I would you were there, mate. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like, uh, you know, he's a peculiar guy, but also what's quite dangerous about him is just that very thing that I talked about. The fact that he's very charming. Aye. So like, then that way your, your, your immediate instincts are like, don't like you, but then it's like, oh yes, how are you? Very good. I know, and, blah, blah, blah. and you're kind of like, all right, okay, mm-hmm. I'm not bad, and blah, blah, blah. But like the other night in question time when he was on a few weeks ago and he was like, oh yes, the Boer War concentration camps Aye. had the same death rate as Glasgow at that time. Aye. And you're like, not only is that absolute mince it's like people were nodding at it because of the way he said it yeah and like you're just you've just justified mass internment of civilians mm-hmm. in order to break the fighting resistance of a population yeah like the parallels with like Northern Ireland for example are striking right there but because he said it in such a sort of matter of fact very aloof way mm-hmm people almost like believed it because of the way it was said yeah and that's quite scary about politics because like if i don't know if it is but people have a natural inclination to defer to what they see as authority and if somebody like that is like seen as like an upper class guy mm-hmm. they're like he must know what he's talking about very interesting you say that i can't remember who i was speaking to and i was some i can't remember if it was on a recent podcast or just in conversation and someone was saying about there was say three categorizations or three categories of um, types of minds when it comes to being analytical about someone. There's some, as you say, that have a natural inclination to just defer to what they perceive to be authority. So yeah. when it's spoken with a very, yes, like that, like that, with that haunting, That's a good impression. I know. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, something that, like a Jim Henson Halloween it's a weird special. He's got, yeah. Aye, it's bizarre. And he, he sits like a half shut knife as well. It's a funny thing that upper class people do where they like, the, the guy sits, I mean, you can't see it obviously, but yeah. that he kind of sits back against the seats in the house they are quite comfy to be fair uh, but he almost like lies on them 
I feel like that's like an arrogance. And you know, and it's like he does. He sits in the wee perch up in the corner, creep. and then it's like he gets up and does his pearl of wisdom from it. You know, and it's right. like everybody's in oh, it's what has he got to say about it? Jacob Smog, if you're listening, <laughs> I could knock you out with one punch. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I would. I would love to. Um, I don't saying? condone violence. You know? No, we, we don't condone <laughs> violence. I'm only joking. If anybody's listening, who uh, who could cause me hassle? No, there was something I was going to say. Yeah, what do you think about the? You know, you say people saying that um, the House of Commons is designed to look like you know the corridors of the private schools and like eating and stuff that that these a lot of MPs are in in order to make it. Yeah. You know, a comfortable environment for them, but uncomfortable for anybody who's not from that background. Let's like, say you saying your man Reese Mogg just lying back because he's probably completely at ease in that sure. type of environment I think I would be a bit taken aback like oh uh, we're going to come for a tour and see it well, mate, I 100% <laughs> I always, we spoke about this a couple of times and I fancy a pint in the strangers bar do you yeah. know what I fancy oh. see that um, bar the the one that's on the, the terrace social oh that's the one that's on the terrace so right, the, that the, the strangers amazing. is on the terrace right aye. aye best beer garden in London by the way I know it looked it's absolutely nice. unbelievable so I had, a, I, had a, I had a celebratory <coughs> pint of Guinness at lunch yesterday yeah after we hammered the prime minister <laughs> you know so I was <laughs> like I was like yes Guinness up the road but um, Wait, uh, how, how let's let's talk a bit more specific to you how how did you feel because you were saying you know you were a wee bit rabbit in the headlights how did you feel you know, you're for a working class area, you're for, are you for Milton? Yeah, Milton, Orkinairn. Right, so yeah. you're for Orkinairn, so you're for a working class area in the north of Glasgow. You find yourself thrust into, uh, you know, a race for Glasgow North East. You know, Aye. you win the election. You know, how do you feel when you first go down there? Well, I mean, I'd never visited um, Parliament before I went there as an MP. That's mental, <laughs> So uh, it was, it was, it was crazy. Like, it's a funny thing, like, I know what you mean about the design of it. <clears throat> um, when you first go in, you know it's like visiting the Vatican or something like that. It's very impressive, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, like a really impressive building. Um, so you, the first part when you go in is like just walking about. Oh shit, this is incredible! Like, I can't believe like you're half expecting a tap on the shoulder and going, "There's been some terrible mistake." <laughs> 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 you're not actually meant to be here. Yeah. So it takes leave. a while just to get adjusted to it. Yeah. Um, and you are kind of going around thinking, "This is too good to be true." I can't believe I've actually ended up here. This is mental. Um, and it is kind of impressive like you're bumping into folk that you'd seen on the telly all the time you know like uh-huh. first thing you get in the House of Commons actually it's tiny is it, like, eh? it looks massive on telly but it's actually not that big um, there's only 430 seats and there's 650 MPs mm. so it's a bit like a pub um, you know on a the Friday night people react when like it, it's when screaming it's, and all that yeah and it was absolutely disgraceful the other night I'll, I'll maybe say more about that but mm-hmm. like um, when you first arrive you know it's it's crazy you're, you're coming down and it's basically there's your passage, a laptop. There's no office for you yet, <laughs> so just go up and sit in the library and kind of base yourself out of there. You get like a locker. It's kind of crazy, and then it takes like a month for you to even get an office. Aye. Um, so I share with um, Daniel Rowley, who's the MP for Midlothian. So we're yeah. the two youngest Labour MPs. So it's kind of nice having somebody who's roughly the same age as you. I think the average age of an MP is like fifty-seven. Mm-hmm. So it's like majority of the people there, you can't really relate to them in that sense. Mm-hmm. So you kind of almost by age you sort of attract, you sort of speak to the younger MPs. Um, so I mean it, it's crazy for the first while you're just like there's an adrenaline rush, there's a sort of like exhilaration, also a kind of panic and a fear about like how am I going to adjust to this? How can I get used to the chamber and stuff like that? like get into this room where it's, which is so iconic and the, you know you've seen it all the time on the green benches and actually then standing up and making a speech in it Aye. and the feeling of the weight. Of everybody staring at you, like it's like crushing you. Can imagine. You know? So it's quite difficult to get used to that. But um, I remember like, when I first went in, I was sitting and I was like, "There's a prime minister, like, and literally about as far away as you are from me." Mm-hmm. And you're just like, "This is mental!" Like, can't believe I've ended Aye. up sitting here. And then like get up and ask a question, you know? <laughs> and it, it's it's like I picked for prime minister's questions only about three weeks after I got elected. You're like, shit, I need to ask the Prime Minister something important. You know, and thinking about what you're going to say and get a good hit. Say, <laughs> why Why do you well, work my, that? <laughs> my first PMQ was why you shutting half the job centres in Glasgow when unemployment in Glasgow is twice yeah, the yeah. national average. And for, well, yeah, and forcing everybody on uh, online um, systems to claim benefits when actually the vast majority of people claiming benefits in Glasgow don't have even access to a computer. Mm-hmm. You go to a library, you've got like an hour at most to get, use yeah, a computer. Right. 
and folk aren't IT literate just so making it as difficult for people yeah. as possible well, if anybody's seen the film I Daniel Blake they'll know exactly the story you know about how people are getting absolutely hammered by it it's like a, an absolute psychological warfare on mm-hmm. like poor people but I can ask that question at the start but what you quickly realise is it's all theatre as you were saying yeah. like much of it is going to be me asking an answer to make a political point her replying to make a political point there's never any genuine interest in mm-hmm. cooperating or taking on board anything that's said. See, if I get a chance to ask Theresa May a question, it would be, why is it every time, like, why do you not know how to curtsy yet? <laughs> how mental is that? That mad uh, weird yeah. thing she does. Uh, she's I know like a Thunderbird like, puppet. I, I, know yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. I know you're obviously making a very articulate point there about the whole purpose of question time and I'm just, yeah. minutes of question I'm just saying I'd ask her why she cuts she's like yeah that. she's very awkward and that's one of the you know it's interesting that because there's more to it than that it's not yeah. just that look the reality is politics is built on decent human relationships mm-hmm. and being able to bring people with you and what's going on in Parliament right now this whole thing about a deadlock nobody can agree how to move forward with this whole Brexit situation there's all sorts of options that are getting binned and getting discussed mm-hmm. and so on well large part of it is like the leader of the situation kind of needs to be able to build a rapport with people and build kind of a, a positive sort mm-hmm. of respect and that is just something that she's utterly incapable of doing on an emotional level her emotional intelligence is just so bad yeah um, and people across like parliament have observed this you know just it's almost like we've got the worst prime minister for this situation yeah like this set of circumstances needed somebody who was willing to build bridges, be cooperative, be a bit humble, um, recognise that they've not got a majority and try and open up. Uh and like she's so authoritarian, so stubborn, so robotic, you know, everybody calls her the Maybot. Quite the um, rebel as well, you know, running through fields of wheat. Yeah, you know, oh, Jesus. It's it's just <laughs> cringing to you know it's just but it's, I, you know that way people go, I almost feel sorry for her, but it's like, I, I kind of, I can kind of understand that, but also I'm like, she's not helped herself. Yeah. Like, you're almost like screaming at her internally, like, just can just go. Either go or just radically admit that this has failed and you need to totally start from scratch that and reassess the whole that thing. It was a, that it was a complete yeah. PR stunt that even people who led it have sort of started to admit and say we didn't think it would go this yeah, well, I mean, this is the thing about the Tories. Like, I mean, I, I keep getting laid into them, but this is a safe but, space for hammering but, Tories. But look at Boris Johnson, for example, guy who wrote uh, columns and columns about being favour of Europe, being pro EU, then switched because he thought it's a chance for him to get to be prime minister. Mm-hmm. The guys like ch- treated this whole thing as like some Eton Parlour game when it's lives on the line, mm-hmm. it's folks, jobs, it's you know, it's the whole country. And this is the thing about like when you talked about parliament and the culture and how people adjust to it like the majority of MPs take a pay cut to become an MP mm-hmm. the majority like a, lot, a vastly disproportionate amount of MPs are like from private schools um, you know the culture is massively different you know it's quite striking I mean I, I'm not making maybe a partisan point but the first thing I thought when I went in and sort of was sitting in the House of Commons was like the contrast between the Tory side of the House and the Labour side was incredible mm-hmm. like the amount of ethnic minorities the amount of women, people that looked like they were from a working class background, regional accents, mm-hmm. all the rest of it. It felt like a proper representation. It felt like it was representative. And you just look over at the Tories and it's all like, you know, pinstripe suits, white men, white guys in their mid 50s, mm-hmm. public school, plummy voiced. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, this is mental. That And there's a really good book I got. Um, one of my staff got me it, or not, she, she got it, but she gave me a loan of it. Um, it's called Why We Get the Wrong politicians All right. I was having to read that over Christmas um, some of it's relatable some of it isn't from my particular position but like you actually realise like the Tory party is like a tiny party in terms of its members mm-hmm. so these guys are like all swivelized like loons just rabid racists like really dodgy characters that are members of the Tory party yeah. I mean, you have to, I mean, who's going to join the Tory party as a know, member you've got to think about that but then they pick the MPs you know, so there's maybe like 200 guys in a room, you know, who pick who the MP for that whole constituency is going yeah. to be. So you, you realise actually very quickly that there's like almost like a cohort of about 5,000 people decide who all the Tory MPs are. So no wonder it's so massively out of kilter with the population. Yeah. You know, whereas like, I suppose in the Labour Party's point of view, it went from being the size of the city of like Stirling to the size of Glasgow within like a year because of Jeremy Corbyn. Mm-hmm. So it's now a mass party. 
and obviously there's tensions within the party because of that because traditionally there's these MPs that were kind of parachuted in quite hostile to Jeremy Corbyn and the membership particularly the new membership mm-hmm. and they're like what are we doing with this guy who's an MP who's just t- totally panning and, you know, our leadership all the time mm-hmm. so then there's tensions about getting you know maybe getting rid of certain MPs and stuff like that which is causing all sorts of problems so you know you can see how there's tensions about how politics has been disrupted in the last while mm-hmm. um, a reaction against some of the issues we've talked about but also a scary sort of Trump like tendency creeping into the right of politics as well with like Boris Johnson and stuff quite scary to think that he could be Prime Minister in the next few months well, I, I'm really disturbed by the normalisation of like you know extreme you know right wing racism yeah. and, and xenophobia um, and it's it's people like that that are sort of they are normalising that they're making you know, the, and I think the media are complicit in it as well when the media are reporting with people are they giving people a platform people like your man yeah, Stephen Yaxley Lennon yeah, I refuse to even say his name yeah. to be honest um, yeah. well it's a good point you've made because in the last 24 hours you know like I was um, just after that vote yesterday um, I was quite shocked at the you know just coming out of parliament to go home and you're hearing a flute band that, out, outside parliament I know. and you're hearing guys doing Nazi salutes you're <laughs> seeing guys with balaclavas on this guy um, making horrendous Hitler-like speeches Aye. outside the House of Commons. It was like, what's happened to this country? It's scary. But I also recognise that they probably don't speak for a, 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 a majority, but this is a whole question of why we're giving these people oxygen. I know. And how toxic is that whole situation allowing these people to even have a platform? It, it, it enrages me. I mean, it, going away back to when I was at school, it was Nick Griffin. The yeah. BNP who was given airtime, and, and, and in reality, they destroyed themselves. Aye, and they say, you know, you give somebody enough airtime and they hang themselves, or, or you give them enough rope and they'll hang themselves, or you know, you give somebody enough airtime and they can start to normalise and creep into, you know, social consciousness as, oh, this is a legitimate thing. Mm-hmm. I, I saw somebody saying that, that Robinson. The, the difference when we were growing up, just to make the point, though, is the far right didn't have the same agency back then because it was before the crash, mm-hmm. it was before all the social tension that's crept in. Aye. And you have to remember, I mean, I don't want to draw parallels, but I, I am. <laughs> but uh, if you look at 1930s Germany... I was just thinking um, that. People need to remember the Nazis were voted in. I know. And they were voted in in the context of massive economic disruption. Yeah. You know, so the risks are there. Like, if, if people, particularly in working class areas, like, and it's, it's sad to see this, that the level of political education in the country is very bad. Um and that's all element of work, organised working class uh, politics has collapsed in this country because of an onslaught of 40 years of neoliberalism, Thatcherism, destroying the traditional power bases of the working class, mm-hmm. which is trade unions, big industries where a thousand people congregated. They had football teams, they had bands, they had um, trade unions and organisation and education. Don't you ever seen the film they passed around about East Kilbride? Uh, I've got it saved. Uh, Aye, it's really good. It's worth watching. But that's a good example of like how traditionally working class people were educated about oppression, about solidarity, about the exploitation of the capitalists against mm-hmm. the workers. These sorts of things aren't they talked about anymore as much as they were because of the, the destruction of industry and the traditional power of the working class, the 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 anti trade union laws that we put in so that the the expression of working class power like happened during the minor strike, for example, in eighty four aren't allowed to happen anymore because it's illegal believe mm-hmm. it or not but that sort of thing's died away um, and what's happened in its place people still feel the same frustration they still feel that their lives are being exploited now they're turning towards identity politics mm-hmm. they're turning towards it must be to do with these immigrants mm-hmm. it must be to do with these people coming in you know it's, it's, it's that but it's that kind of thing it's easy to then develop that kind of reaction mm-hmm. and I can understand that you know, it's a false target, but I can understand why it's a target mm-hmm. in the absence of any other competing arguments or effort to educate. Uh-huh. And that's the risk that the country's facing right now. You know, if we don't, if we don't, and it's the same with America, the destruction of the working class in America, the, the so-called Rust Belt was what delivered Trump into power. So the, the, the sort of fear is that this, the, the equivalent of the Rust Belt in Britain, which is like parts of, well, I mean, it's different in Scotland, I suppose, to a certain extent, but it's parts of central Scotland. North East of England, 
um, northwest of England, parts of South Wales, where mining towns, old industrial areas, steel areas that have seen mass unemployment but not seen skilled mm -hmm. uh, jobs coming into the necessarily replace the things that were destroyed by the destruction of industry. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people are like, why, why am I working a dead end job um, for zero hours with poverty pay? Like I'm literally, I'm literally working fifty hours a week, sixty hours a week, and I still can't even afford to feed my kids. I'm doing all the right things. I'm still getting hammered. Mm -hmm. No wonder they're going to turn like vicious against the system. Aye. And and it's almost like, and I'll be, I'll draw parallels with it. To be honest with you, like my constituency voted fifty-seven percent to break up the UK and leave the UK. I'm thinking, and which I was part of. Sure, you know, and. Um, you know, going around an area like Milton, for mm -hmm. example, in the north of Glasgow and Chapman Doors, and like you're like, right, this is this is a big thing. But mm -hmm. the, the a common a common sort of thing that was discussed on the doors was, well, son, the current system, what's it doing for me? Mm -hmm. I'm getting absolutely shafted anyway. Might as well give it a go. I'm nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. You know, so it wasn't necessarily about nationalism per se. It was I, about it was yeah. about. And I, I was I always think of it like. Um, like a Tom and Jerry cartoon, one of the big novelty flashing red buttons that says "Don't press." Aye, and it was like people were like, "You know what? <laughs> the current system's screwed. I'm just going to hit it and see what happens." Um, and I think aye. there's a parallel with what happened there, and there's a parallel with what happened in like North England mm -hmm. uh, in the end, in the EU referendum because they never got that chance to sort of like they never got the the lightning rod. If you know what I mean, the chance to just go, mm -hmm. you know. I'm happy to lay my sort of cards on the table. So in the run-up to the referendum, I remember talking to people and they were saying, basically, I got very, not offended, but I would become very passionate And when somebody suggested that, you know, voting for independence was just this romanticised, like, notion of Scot Aye, like Scottish identity or, like, this misdirected fucking, you know, xenophobia against the English. Yeah. What I felt, I mean, and I could be here all day and it would... You know, I'd probably end up going round in circles trying to remember everything, but I just remember thinking, I'm not happy with this, the, the, the deal that I felt Scotland was getting as part of the UK. Uh -huh. um, and I, I just remember feeling really energised. You know, the level of political engagement, it, it was a really good thing, and I think that that has sort of remained to an extent. You know, it has somewhat diluted a wee bit, although we've had the, um, the Brexit carry-on. But I remember thinking at the time that when we didn't get independence, I was, I was quite upset. Mm. Although I was living in Spain at the time, you know, I was constantly back here, um, and I was quite upset about that. But I remember thinking, let's just say we had got independence at that point, and it, say it was fifty-five for and forty-five against. Mm. That was going to be a very split nation, and if say if things didn't go particularly well, mm. I don't think it's possible to see how it would have went. Then it could have been, you know, two one half the country pulling one way and one half the country pulling the other. And what I felt was that. I remember saying at the time as a supporter of independence that I felt with the Tories for another 10 years, if Brexit was to come to pass, that I felt maybe people would then start to unite. Because I think there were certain lies that were told and they run up, you know, the only way to guarantee European membership is to remain part of the UK. And I know that's kind of an anomaly in, in the way that that's turned out to mm. be. Um, I don't think anybody actually expected that. But what I think is maybe happening is people are becoming more united or more there's been more of a, a charge of support maybe I'm wrong if you want to tell me but more of a support no, for, for independence I think well I mean the polls suggest that it's all fairly static mm. it's interesting that but who conducts those polls I'm always very sceptical well there's also of different companies that do them mm. but but one of the things that I think your points are, are, are totally spot on in many ways like the energy that the referendum Unleashed was powerful. I found that you know that um, level of engagement and people who had never spoken about politics before, and I remember thinking for or against that, that can surely only be a good thing. Yeah. Sorry to kind of jump in, but the example I wanted to give as well is living in Spain in Catalonia in the centre of Barcelona are severely highly politically engaged. Anybody you speak to, I'm talking man child. If a dog could speak, it would tell you its thoughts on Mariano Rajoy or, you know, what should Catalina should be. Not favourable ones, I'm sure. <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> if it was favourable, that dog would be getting a boot right in the teeth. Um, <laughs> but I just remember thinking, this is amazing. See, the first time when I first moved there, I was sitting in the house and I could hear chat. It was like Tuesday night at 10pm and I could hear chanting and shouting and whistles and, and I was explained to me that they were basically protesting against the banks. Mm. And I just remember thinking, 
pe- people complain so Scottish and English people and Americans moan because every few days there is a, a demonstration or a mass protest or there's something and it disrupts you you get in a taxi the taxi has to go the long way yeah. and you can't get the metro because they're, they're all on strike and they're protesting and I really get dead annoyed and I thought well do you know what they get the influence things they're using their democratic right and, and when I started seeing that happening here in Scotland it yeah. was like I started thinking right you know no that's totally it's totally correct and um, interestingly if you correlate the dis- decline of trade union power mm-hmm. and activism with the falling wages yeah. so the share of the national economy that goes to wages i.e. working class people earning the compensation for their labour versus the exploitation and profits by the bosses mm-hmm is massively skewed like since the collapse of trade unions and the decline of trade unions that's totally shifted so actually having that power to strike and to create demonstrations and to disrupt to, in order to fight to get your fair share of things mm-hmm. the proceeds of what you make or do mm-hmm. um, has been massively diminished that's a big challenge and that's a, a lot of the root cause of what the problems are in society but I think your point about the referendum is totally totally correct my only, my only regret about the referendum and there's, uh, similarly with the with the EU referendum was I find bin- binary referendums really really problematic mm-hmm. um, there's a reason why Germany bans referendums yeah you know they were, they were a tool used by populists mm-hmm. and the biggest difficulty I've got with it was the yes no remain leave thing they're very simple que- answers to very complicated questions and we've seen how things have played out with leave. What does leave even mean? Like nobody can agree what it means, right? When I was kind of looking at the independence referendum, and my first instinct was like, I don't believe in no or yes. I don't believe the current status of the UK is any way desirable. In fact, it's 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 like broken. But on the other hand, like I don't necessarily. It's like almost like I need to round up one way or the other. You know, it was so uh-huh. my 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 thinking was. Where's the discussion about how do we just like accept that there's there's failures, but how do we build a structure that's cooperative and and kind of can reshape the whole UK? I, th- I think but that's that's a very good point. I was I was of a very similar standpoint up until I think maybe around twenty twelve thirteen, where I thought the UK is not in a desirable state. But at that point, I rightly or wrongly believed that perhaps Scotland didn't have the necessary, you know. I don't mean I don't want to say infrastructure because we're hardly like a third world nation. Um. But I just thought to to fully go out and thrive and be, you know, be a, a really prosperous, completely prosperous nation. At that point, I thought, do we have that? I was more and more convinced this time went on because, you know, again, I'm not saying I'm like I'm a I'm an economic expert on on you know Scottish interests, but I just felt with with oil, with gas, with, you know, the gin industry is absolutely massive in Scotland. Um, the whiskey. I do like a Scottish gin. I, I really find the Harris gin. Uh, it's got a nice bottle. You've seen it, the kind of swirl pattern. I've not seen it. It's, it's a smart looking I'm a, bottle. I'm a fan of. of <laughs> I'm a big fan of Eden Mill. That's nice. It's, um, yeah, is a, is a very nice gin. But the, I, the um, you know, the whiskey trade, tourism, you know, finance, you know, all, the, all these different things. Even you know, the movie industry somewhat mm. is starting to boom in Scotland. And I started to become more and more convinced. But I do know what you mean. That does it have to be? It is a, as you say, a very simple answer to very complicated questions. There's obviously more. But what I think speaking for myself anyway I think I became so disillusioned with, with UK politics and then even after the referendum the English votes for English law stuff I mm. just remember thinking oh fuck well like, I shared that frustration I um, I, I mean I campaigned for the UK in the end um, so I said <coughs> on balance I think we shouldn't throw the baby out of the bathwater if you like um, my side of it was my analysis of it wasn't necessarily about nationalism or anything like that or you know, everybody says, "Oh, you're either a Brit nat or a Scottish nat." Yeah, I think that's very and disrespectful, that, isn't it? Yeah, you? and I'm like, like, people don't approach you for these, you know, simplistic prisms. You know, like mm-hmm. just because you view the world through these sort of yeah. these binoculars, isn't it the way everybody else does it? Mm-hmm. So my analysis was like, you know, I go to Liverpool quite a lot, go to Manchester quite a lot. Cities feel the same as Glasgow; it doesn't feel like a foreign country to me. Working class communities they share the same tensions, the same exploitation. You know, okay, I think like. One of the people that was making the most coherent arguments for what I was thinking about, ironically, was George Galloway <laughs> during the referendum. He George blocked Gal- me on Twitter Did because he? I asked him if he wanted uh, me to be the cat. <laughs> 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 Did he take it he, too he's well? He's a, a bit of a snowflake on Twitter, but um, him and Brian Wilson um, did a sort of one, like a kind of touring, kind of public hall thing, 
and he, he was making some good points he was talking about like Brian Souter and he's like well the stagecoach bus driver and Newcastle stagecoach bus driver and Glasgow both of them have more in common dealing with the, the, the common exploitation by the owner who happens to be in Scotland it's like just because the bus driver of Glasgow and the owner of the bus company happen to be Scottish doesn't mean that they share much in common other than that that identity so I, I recognise that actually that class analysis is a powerful thing mm-hmm. and to be honest with you my I mean it sounds a bit utopian but my agenda is the less borders between humans the better the less divisions between humans the better you know maybe I'm not exactly calling for a global a global country or whatever or end, end mm-hmm. states but I, I actually like the idea that eventually human society will move towards that sort of direction you know but that doesn't that doesn't mean that the current structures don't need massive reform you know and how do you break down like within communities how do you empower communities yeah. like in Norway for example like 40% of all tax isn't, doesn't go outside the local council level there's massive levels of democratic engagement so how do you how do you restructure even within Scotland like how do you take power back from Edinburgh and have it in like Springburn you know, it's, it's just charge through. They're not English anyway, so <laughs> what are you got to do slap them about here. Yeah. That, no, and yeah. I know but what you mean. There's, there's all sorts of difficulties that we need to deal with, and I think a lot of underlie a lot of the underlying tensions need to be dealt with, mm-hmm. and a lot of that's to do with class and exploitation, and uh, that's why I, I suppose I'm a Labour MP, a socialist, um, approaching it from that level of interaction, approaching it from that analysis, um, and I think again, my point about that understanding of society is diminished because of what I talked about before about you know the collapse of industry that level of organisation that that kind of appeal to they are screwing us over so we need to get out you know it just does it just leaves me kind of cold if you know what I mean it just doesn't resonate with me. but I take your point about the, the morning after the referendum I didn't feel happy hmm. and that wasn't an emotion the emotion I felt was almost grief I felt grief. It was. It, it I was, felt it, devastated. It, it was grief and sadness because I, I genuinely had friends who were passionate on each side, and I felt like, well, I just felt like a great loss of hope. And then, and then, I was like, it feels like it's something that ought to still be harnessed. Yeah. But how, but how do we? How do we take it to something that people are are together on? So, you know, and that, that, that's a complicated question, uh, and obviously, a lot of people's frustration about the result channeled into a backlash against uh, the Labour Party in Scotland. Where I mean, they stood they, shoulder to shoulder with the Tories. That I can understand why that that fucked me off unbelievably. Yeah, better and I, together, I'm not holding you. No, better, better together was, in my opinion, a massive error. Oh. And and and, and uh, you know, it's interesting. I watched that. Independence documentary it was on BBC Scotland. I, can't watch it. I thought I'd get too angry. It's, it's, it's actually it's actually quite well done. Mm-hmm. Um, but that whole discussion was made like Gordon Brown refused to take anything to do with. No uh, so he was wanting to have a specific Labour campaign. And the good point with that is the point if you've got three parties that share nothing in common other than agreement that the UK shouldn't break up, you're not able to make an argument for anything. Mm-hmm. All you're going to be able to do is make an argument against it. So they talk about Project Fear. Mm-hmm. Like the only way that, that that campaign could work was highlighting the risks but not the opportunities or I, the vision. I felt that with every rebuttal that was made or every every sort of response that was made to the yes campaign, it was only I but 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 you you know, this will bad there was never anything, you know that wouldn't work because blah, but here is a positive example I felt I personally for everything that I picked up I just was like it's just constant, you know, you can't do that and it's like, Okay, well, I've simplified that. It was just a very constant, well, the Yes campaign has claimed X. Here's mm-hmm. why that wouldn't work. And there was never a, here is a, what well, I that, see as a that, real benefit. And that also creates the, that creates the tension. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd have rather had a campaign, like I said, if it was not, if it was more options on the paper, mm-hmm. then people would have been arguing for different ideas rather than for an idea or against an idea. And that's what really pissed me off about the way the whole thing worked. And the legacy of that, to an extent, still has a, an undercurrent of bitterness in Scottish politics, which mm-hmm. has really ebbed away. It's not as, it's not anywhere near as tense as it was like four years ago, five, uh, three years ago. Yeah. But I think it's still an unfortunate legacy, and I think if we're going to move forward in this situation, 
I'd like us to focus on avoiding the kind of, these kind of binary divisions again mm. um, and figuring out a way forward that actually talks about people's visions for the future rather than about being fought, being against things. One thing I'd like to pick up on is you said you would like there to be less boundaries and less borders and more connection. Obviously now with people trying to drag us out of, the, out of Europe, which mm. is, you know, it's been for me, the European Union has changed, essentially changed my life because I was able to book a Ryanair flight to Spain and rock up and uh, go to the town hall and be like, all right, lads. You're an honorary Catalan. Aye, yeah. like, all right, lads, like, bon dia, like, I now live here. Keys <laughs> a national insurance number, please, and that was it. And so I think I also, f I feel that and I feel, I feel sad for people that won't get to, to have that experience. You know, it'd be as Scotland with the, um, how do you say this guy's name now? By Guy Verhofstadt, is that how you yeah, pronounce Guy it? Verhofstadt. Verhofstadt. To be honest, I, I mean, he, he's very keen for Scotland to be part of the European he, Union. he's also a bit, a bit of an extremist in another sense. Mm, where, he, so. where he's missed the United States of Europe, you know, and it's like, it's a bit like, let's let's look at how we build this because if you're if you're too extreme on one level you might fracture the whole thing mm -hmm. you know and the well, extremity obviously has well, to be regulated yeah and, and, and also i'm not this is the thing i i, I, I but again it's a similar thing on balance i think the eu is a good thing mm -hmm. but i'm not blind to its massive flaws similarly oh, I'm, I'm not i'm on balance in favor of the uk but i'm not blind to its flaws if you know what i mean mm -hmm. so the big argument i have is like can anyone name who their mep is you know, I couldn't. Uh, and also, like, I mean, I, I, I barely know who the MEPs are from Labour. Like, mm. you know, to be honest with you, I've maybe met them a handful of times, you know. Mm. But, and I'm meant to know this stuff, you know. But also, look at what happened. You know, I, I'm a bit, I share the vision of like Varoufakis, like Yanis Varoufakis, the, the former Greek finance minister, when they get a left wing party in Greece in reaction to the financial crash, but they had to deal with the Troika, which is like the IMF, the World Bank, and the, the European Commission. Um, and uh, they are having a massive, massive dispute over how to deal with the financial crash in Greece. Mm -hmm. um, and what's happened really is what's largely a German-controlled European Monetary Union forced massive austerity onto Greece, similarly on Spain, Ireland, Portugal and Italy. And the, the, their response was rather, to, rather than to allow the surpluses to flow from Germany into into Greece to balance things out, they demanded massive wage cuts and spending cuts in Greece, which hammered working class mm -hmm. like lifestyles. Um, and that's an incredibly neoliberal thing to do. Like it's a, it's, a, it's quite a and a lot of people have said you know the single market for example is a Thatcherite project. It was Margaret Thatcher that wanted it. You know, so I believe in solidarity. I believe in fighting for I mean I've got my I've got my little badge on uh, with the Socialist International which says uh, love socialism hate Brexit which is the which is the symbol of the socialist parties across uh, Europe mm -hmm. and so it, it must be tough for you then obviously we, we want we're hating Brexit and, and I don't mean, and I'm not trying to be like as I say Paxman and nip at you and try and catch <laughs> you but it must be quite tough because I, I believe you are some although you you'll Garner criticism, as you say, because people just hate you because they see red, literal, literal red Tory. It's a reflex. It's like red Tory, I'm sorry. Uh, red Labour. And um, ah, maybe that was uh, a Friday. It's a Friday. You're a bastard. No, but I, no, I think you're a, very, a thoroughly decent guy. Like I'll be honest, I, I didn't vote for you. I voted SNP. I'm happy to say that. But I'm happy with the representation that you've given. And right. now, I would maybe I don't know would I vote for you in the future I'm not too sure because I'd like to see an independent Scotland but it doesn't mean I don't support you I, I know you're yeah. a stand up thoroughly decent guy and I have said to you I've well there's a lot of um, you know there's a lot of this is an interesting point because like as I said the constituency voted 57% yes mm -hmm. what you found was a lot of folk on the doors were saying look UK election I believe in there's only going to be two governments a Tory government or a Labour government so I'll support you this election because mm. um, I want to get a socialist government in the UK if we can but make no mistake about it if there's another independence if I'm voting for mm -hmm. independence you know so that there was that kind of like I was I was kind of given the you know I was given this sort of yeah made it clear to me where they stood on things yeah which was quite refreshing because before it was like you know don't touch your barge pole sort of thing you know mm -hmm. or, or don't we're not interested in the party but you know to your point about like the, the sort of difficulties this presents Brexit 
Um, no, you're right, but I think it's worth fighting for. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not one of these people that's willing to capitulate. Certainly not just now. That's what I want to hear as um, my elected representative. You know, and we're down there trying to talk to colleagues. As I said, there's a lot of people that are upset. There's a lot of people that are getting death threats. Mm-hmm. There's literally these guys like Aaron Banks, the the dark money that's flown into these campaigns. They're targeting the MPs on social media who are in marginal constituencies and leave areas, and they're really hammering them because they know that we can crack them. You know, if we really hit them hard with, like, inundate them with emails, we get the fascists to write to them and really, really kind of spook them, we might crack them and get them to vote our way. So that's what's going on. It's sinister. Uh, it's a subversion of democracy. Mm-hmm. So, like, we're trying to fight that, speaking to people in Parliament, saying, look, you need to hold the faith, you need to vote for what you know is right. And it's a hard conversation because it's easy for me to say it to some extent because I'm not the one that's sitting awake at night you know, fucking shitting myself about yeah. somebody putting a letter bomb through my door, you know, or whatever. You know, so uh, I met, and of course, we're only a lot of these MPs had to deal with the fact that just three years ago, one of their colleagues was stabbed to death by a fascist, assassinated by a fascist in the streets so of Yorkshire. You just took the thought out of my mind. I was know, just about to say it. So a lot of these people are like, this isn't just a theory. This is something that happened. Mm-hmm. You know, this is like a female MP was slaughtered on the streets by a fascist. You know, so a terrorist. Eh? Well, yeah. You know, and this is what's kicking off, you know. So, whilst it might feel quite benign in Glasgow, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't feel like it's kicking off like that. Mm. In other working class areas where they've felt like they've been thwarted, um, that they're, they've are they been whipped up by the, this kind of right-wing agenda, it's, it's really hard, you know. So I try to make the arguments, look, let's work our way through it. Leave as a, as a massive strategic mistake it's a huge betrayal of the working class. Um, we need to at least give people a chance to say, is this the leave you really wanted? Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm campaigning for this final say referendum, saying, yeah. look, it's a bit like you know putting an offer in on a house. You might like the house. When you get the mortgage back, you're like, oh, shit, it's actually really unaffordable. Aye, see, see that part you know, about, listen, we voted, all right, so we have, do we have one general election and then never vote again? Yeah, exactly. Probably opinion changes. And it's also like, from a trade union point of view, all these people will be in trade unions, and you're like, well, you know, if you get a pay offer, and then they go away and negotiate mm-hmm. to get a better one, and then they come back and go right. Use guys vote, you know, to see Aye. if you want the final the final pay deal. <laughs> it's like like this. It's actually it's a Tory agenda. They're just trying to shut down the argument. Mm-hmm. It's this idea that you know fifty percent plus one, and obviously in a in a democracy, there's a there's a there's a, the risk of the tyranny of the majority, mm-hmm. where like like you say, you know, in Scotland, like forty five percent vote yes. Um, so should their views never be taken into account? It's half, I know, it's know. half the nation. So there's that whole thing where how do you bring the country together? <coughs> Theresa May is failing to do it. And that's why everything's so split and divisive right now. Mm-hmm. And you've got the right-wing press, which has been viciously anti-immigration, and um, anti-working class, anti-trade union, anti-labour for a long time, hammering these narratives home to working class people about how you know they need to indulge in nationalism. I, and I say nationalism as in the, the really brutal identity politics version mm-hmm. of nationalism, you know. So, like that's that's the the fight we've got to deal with. You I know, f- I find it very difficult to wrap my head around the fact that the the re- the leave re- the sorry Brexit referendum or European referendum was never essentially not you know um, deemed to be null and void because see when we look at you say fifty percent plus one. But how much of that fifty percent plus one was severely misleaded? You know that we know all about the bus that eat. Well, yesterday the, 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 the NHS just dropped bus. their appeal against being corrupt. Mm. You know, so yeah, that in the, itself just completely removes any credibility whatsoever from me. Yeah, the, the the result was massively unsound. You know, um, given the level of the misinformation, not just that, but they go over oh, seventeen million people voted leave. You can't, you know, come back to us when that petition that's on just now about revoking Article Fifty gets to seventeen million. Come back to us. I think it's about six million just now. But the point of that is, go around these seventeen million folk and say, do you all exactly agree with exactly you, what you're voting on now that what's coming to light? And the amount of times you replay, you know, footage from the time, and it's got like punters like um, Boris Johnson and Daniel Hannan, and these kind of people going, "Oh, don't worry, the single market, the customs union, nobody's talking about getting rid of that. We're going to just come out of the EU, but we're staying in all these other things." I think, and it's, it's like, give them an inch, take, they're taking a mile, and they've now manipulated it. So I've got MPs, Labour MPs, that are saying, "Look, 
the working people in my area are going, you're, you're sold out. What happened to you, man? Like, why mm. are you going down there and selling us out? We've voted for leave. But also, they've got it into their heads now that no deal leave is like the, the pure, that's that's the pure version of leave. fucking mental. Yeah, I, I but I mean, this is the thing, like, how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you, un, how do you unscrew this screw up? And part of the part of the issue is like a lot of MPs are saying like we could only support another referendum if no deal was on the ballot paper. And I'm like, it's so mental it should be on the ballot paper. But uh-huh. is that the risk that we need to run in order to get through this? Can we be affording to take this? Such as that, just well, in case it I really mean, does. It's what, it's what Keir Starmer, the, the you know our, our shadow Brexit guy, has been saying. He's been like, you don't go into a casino and bet the house on on black and just hope it comes up on the roulette wheel. You know, that's just mental. Never bet what you can't uh, afford to lose. Can we really afford to lose that? No, we cannot. And with, the, with the, the lies and disinformation and sort of deceit that, that was carried out in the run-up to that, let's just say that you were to be elected as Prime Minister, but it actually... <laughs> right, and, and you had, you won it by a majority, you know? It happened one day, I'm sure it, there's a high chance. Make life a lot easier. So <laughs> imagine it then came to light. Let's just say that I was to prove it, that you had completely deceived everybody that voted for you that you had actually misled them you told various lies would you then still be deemed oh but yeah but everyone voted for him I think there would be some sort of you know there was some sort of investigation you would most likely be removed if it was proved that you so severely deceived people and that you had told them black was white and they voted for you on the basis of that and that's why that you know it's so it is so undemocratic to then go oh, well, be, but the majority voted for it I, well, the, the majority were fucking lied to pal so it doesn't <laughs> In, in essence, I know it's, I'm, I'm really simplifying it here, but it just almost doesn't count. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to um, to unpick this because you can never, as I said, never underestimate how absolutely devious these forces can be on the right wing. They're like um, you know, Dick Dastardly. Yeah, but you know, pure evil. But they've dropped this poison into people's heads. It's about like 28 days later. You know, they've, mm. they've been infected with the thought. Aye. You know, now it's hard to get it away from them.